Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hey, this is Ben Brock Johnson. And Amory Sievertson, and we're the co-hosts of another podcast from WBUR called Endless Thread. We recently made a special series that we think you, as a Last Seen listener, will appreciate. It's called Madness, the secret mission for mind control and the people who paid the price. It's about the history of CIA-funded mind control experiments conducted at a psychiatric hospital in Montreal in the 1950s and 60s. You're about to hear a teaser of part one, titled The Sleep Room. If you like what you hear, subscribe to Endless Thread to hear the rest of the Madness series. Okay, here's the show. Produced by the iLab at WBUR, Boston. Check, 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 check. Once again, Amory Sievertson and I are setting up our recording kit. I was going to make you just, like, hold the umbrella over my head in the kit. Okay. It is a stormy day in Montreal, and we are in an eerie place known as the Allen Memorial Institute. I did reach out to the Allen Memorial for an interview, and they did not want to talk. So we're not here to talk, just to look. The Allen is really where the story we're going to tell you today all started. I mean, the weather certainly isn't helping right now, but it does... <laughs> it does look like a, like a prison. Yeah. Emory and I are making our way down a mountainside towards this group of buildings, perched on the eastern slope of Mount Royal Park an ancient volcanic mountain that gave the city of Montreal its name. You can see why. Mount Royal is this big bump of green that rises up out of the middle of the city. It's pretty. On a less gloomy day, so is the Allen, sort of. Originally, this was a mansion. It consists of two old stone buildings that make up 53,000 square feet. The mansion itself and a horse stable. The stable at one time had its own special name. The sleep room. Oh yeah, there's the sleep room. Where? It's right there. Oh, so you're right. Let's okay. just keep it chill. And- Over the mansion's main entrance right hangs the stone bust of a snarling dog, and a large stone face staring blankly out over the city below, its lips just slightly parted. The shipping magnate who had this compound built in the 1860s, Hugh Allen, called this place Raven's Crag. It's very separate from Montreal. It's very removed. Yeah, like if you were making a horror film about 
psychiatric, a psychiatric facility. <laughs> this is like central casting building-wise, I would say. This place is a psychiatric hospital. The mansion was eventually given to McGill University, and that's how it became the Allen Memorial Institute. And while it might seem like a good movie location, what happened at the Allen decades ago is real and really disturbing. This is where people were kept for weeks, months, years sometimes, induced and experimented on. There's so much history here, and it's history that at least the victims really would like people to know the story of this place and what happened here. Light deprivation, shock treatment, hallucinogenic drugs, and she lost her soul. Cameron didn't seem to have the slightest hesitation about destroying the lives of his subjects. Uh, he was willing to try the most extreme techniques. People have a hard time listening and grasping the reality of this. It shatters their belief system. During the 1950s and 60s, the alum was run by one powerful doctor, a man who was considered an innovator, maybe even a visionary, a man who spent his days trying to cure the mentally ill with cutting-edge techniques, and his nights reading science fiction. His name was Dr. Ewan Cameron, and his work at the Allen Memorial Institute was actually part of a huge, secret, government-funded program that stretched its tentacles around the world. We'll get to all of that. But for now, here's what you should know. In the U.S., this secret government program was run by the CIA. It had a name and a mission. Its name was MKUltra. MKUltra is almost too unbelievable to believe. And its mission was mind control. What is less well-known is the key role that the Allen Memorial Institute and its director played in this weird, dark chapter in Western history. Today, we are going to tell you about what happened at the Allen and who it happened to. I'm Ben Brock Johnson. I'm Amory Sievertson, and you're listening to Endless Thread. The show featuring stories found in the vast ecosystem of online communities called Reddit. We're coming to you from WBUR, Boston's NPR station. And we are bringing you part one of a special series, Madness, the secret mission for mind control and the people who paid the price. Back in October of 2019, the day before Amory and I were walking the grounds of Montreal's Allen Memorial Institute, we sat down to talk with someone who had been treated there almost 60 years ago. My name is Nancy Layton, and I was a victim of uh, treatments at the Allen Memorial from five to six months. Nancy was sent to the Allen in September of 1961. She went in at just 18 years old. And by all accounts at the time, Nancy was bright, and beautiful and talented. Now, there are deep, dark circles under Nancy's eyes. Her long hair is completely white. Her skin is like tracing paper. Her speech is slurred. And throughout her conversation with us, she repeats things. I'm healthy, well, and I'm and, healthy, uh, and well. I, I, I want to say fine. that I'm healthy, well, and I'm, I'm healthy, free of it. Well. Nancy says she's healthy and well now. But when she was a teenager, she went through a program designed by the director of the Allen Memorial Institute, Dr. Ewan Cameron. 
At the time, Dr. Cameron was supposedly doing something exciting. He was wiping out mental illness in people and rebuilding them. Nancy spent just six months at the Allen. She was pulled out in March of 1962. And even though members of her family put Nancy into the Allen, they now say that because of what happened there, she's never been the same. So my name is Angela Bardosh. Uh, I'm Nancy Layton's daughter. I'm here to talk about uh, things that had happened to my mom a long time ago when she was only 18 at the Allen Memorial. In 1961, Nancy had just recently started her first big job out of school. And I went to National Fence and worked for them for a year or two. And then I became uh, a bit sick. It was a little more complicated than that. Nancy was working for Canada's Defense Department, where there were a lot of men, some of whom started giving her unwanted attention, what would probably qualify today as sexual harassment. Nancy, her family, and her doctors all seem to agree on this part of the story. But as Angela reads from her mother's medical documents, you get the sense that Nancy's doctors thought she might have been seeing some things that weren't really there. She soon found herself in difficulty because she felt that men were looking at her and making passes at her. This was quite possibly true, as she's quite attractive. She began, however, to build up aggressive beliefs that she was being spied upon and began to see uh, significance in minor actions, the way people move their arms. Nancy's sister also said that she had started to act strange. That's when Nancy's parents got involved. My mother said, we'll talk with Dr. Cameron and see what he can do. And he admitted me, and that's when the link started. The whole thing that started was that Nancy's mother, a medical nurse herself, had an idea of how to tackle Nancy's problems. She knew of a guy named Dr. Cameron. He'd been running the Allen since the 40s, but by the early 60s, he'd become a giant in the field. He brought prestige to McGill University's new psychiatry department. And these were heady days for the field of psychiatry. Dr. Cameron was doing some of the most boundary-pushing, exciting work in the Western world. People described Dr. Cameron's reputation as godlike. He was in magazines. He was an innovator, a disruptor. He was always giving inspiring speeches about the nature of humanity and how to fix some of our greatest mental health challenges. ...is that many of us repress so much that it is almost as though we had a second person within us, someone who constantly endangers the first by attempting to take over. There arises an aversion to mental illness, an aversion spreading out and covering the whole field of mental health. So that this great area of medicine... Dr. Cameron had a guiding theory that you could eliminate someone's mental illness by wiping their mind clean. He developed a rigorous regimen of inducing prolonged periods of sleep, giving his patients electroshocks multiple times a day and giving them intense cocktails of barbiturates, hallucinogens, and so-called truth serums. He would put patients in chemically induced comas for days or months at a time, use sensory deprivation techniques, even play aggressive and insulting messages at them, all designed to reduce the mentally ill to a childlike state, remove them entirely from time and space so that he could rebuild them. He called this technique Depatterning. Cameron and his colleagues were reportedly eager to have Nancy and other people like her come to the Allen. She was a perfect fit for the kinds of experiments they were doing. Cameron admitted Nancy 
and got her started on his cutting-edge regimen. And the doctor suggested a shock treatment, and he started giving me these treatments. And at one course, my heart stopped in the beginning. And uh, they had to, yeah, heart stopped. I went into cardiac arrest, and they had to bring me out of it. Electroshock therapy, or what is now called electroconvulsive therapy, wasn't all that unusual in the early 1960s. But what was happening at the Allen under Dr. Cameron's direction was very unusual. The form of electroshock he was using was 20 to 40 times more intense than the standard dose. And his patients could receive them two or three times a day. This was just the beginning of what Nancy went through. That we know. There's just one big problem. Nancy, what do you remember about being at the Allen? Hardly anything in the beginning because I was in a room. Uh, I remember waking up in February, waking up near the end, and they said, we'll take you back to your room now after I came out of the sleep. Remember the horse stables at the Allen? How that building had another name? The sleep room? Nancy went into the Allen in September of 1961. And yet all that she remembers is waking up in February of 1962. Angela spent a long time trying to get more information about her mother's treatment at the Allen. It was a very painful process of just getting the records, reading the records. What she got, eventually, it's shocking to read. She had five days of sleep and five ECTs. She was taken out of the sleep room on October 30th. However, she immediately showed signs of relapse. By the first week of December, the patient had had 87 ECTs. She was then changed from Largactyl 150 milligrams QID to Trilafon. By March 23rd, she had had 129 ECTs. Nancy had been administered 129 intensive electroconvulsive therapy treatments in six months, and she'd been heavily sedated with a mix of antipsychotics and barbiturates, things like pentothal, a sedative. When Angela looked that one up, she found out it was a drug that for many years was used in higher doses for lethal injection. Do you remember Dr. Cameron himself? Oh, yeah. What do you remember about him? I remember being on uh, the stretch of the day, the lying bed and him giving me my injection to go before I went to have the treatment, have the shock treatment. He, he was the one that gave me the shot in my arm to put me to sleep. The injection Dr. Cameron gave Nancy was some kind of barbiturate, a sedative to put her into that deep sleep. If he was going to wipe her mind, he needed to shut it down first. Do you remember anything else about any anything he said to you? Call me Nancy Pansy. <laughs> you can hear Nancy's daughter Angela there, trying to jog her memory. Angela says that Nancy's grip on her own memory is tenuous at best. Sometimes Nancy remembers things in the wrong order. Sometimes she doesn't remember anything. Sometimes things come back in bits and pieces. I was in the room and I was awake in the morning and I was coming back to her life, and then uh, my mother came a few days later and they took me out. 
And do you remember anything about sort of how your mother reacted to the treatment you were getting or? She said that Cameron was an old fool. Was he though? Dr. Cameron was treating people all the time. Maybe those treatments just didn't work for everyone. But in the time that Nancy was at the Allen, her parents had done a 180 on the treatment she was receiving under the direction of Dr. Cameron. They wanted her out. Nancy came out of the Allen almost 20 pounds heavier, her memory impaired, and her independence gone. She's relied on antipsychotic drugs basically ever since she left, almost six decades ago. Yes, Nancy was having psychological problems when she went into the Allen, but Angela says her mom was never the same after she was treated there. That's echoed in the official diagnosis when she was taken out and in the observations of her family. Six months later, to come out with um, a lot of memory loss, um, experiencing, you know, then further delusions and, and really schizophrenic behavior and being diagnosed officially as acute schizophrenic from this, uh, I really believe that she was turned into a schizophrenic. And then as you're, you know, you live a life like that after six months of going through hell, um, how do you regain your, your life? How do you even go about? Originally, doctors at the Allen had suggested they could help Nancy. By the time she was released, Dr. Cameron was saying she couldn't be made whole again. And in a letter Dr. Cameron wrote to the new doctor who would take care of Nancy after she left the Allen, he describes Nancy's family in terms that don't feel very empathetic. Um, her father was a drug salesman, but now retired. He's 68 and has always been dominated by his wife. Anyways, the mother is a driving, assertive, over-talkative woman who tends to misinterpret things. Um, in terms of quick Whoa, things, whoa, whoa, yeah. whoa, wait. Let's pause on that graph. Yeah. Like, the father uh, has always I been dominated by his wife, an over-talkative woman who tends to misinterpret things. This sounds a lot like a doctor trying to undermine the ability of Nancy's mother, a medical nurse, to be her advocate in care going forward. After she left the Allen, Nancy went into another psychiatric facility where she fell in love with another patient, Angela's father. They had Angela, but Nancy continued to be in and out of treatment. She couldn't work. She couldn't take care of her daughter, let alone herself. Angela's father and Nancy got divorced when Angela was four. She was raised by her grandparents. She didn't see much of her mom growing up. But eventually, she had to step in and take care of Nancy. When you first went to see where your mom was living and, and what her life was like and you made a, a choice to become more involved in your mom's life, how was she living? What did things look like? Yeah, it was, it was tough. It was tough to see. It was despicable. There was cockroaches. Uh, things haven't been washed in many weeks. Even just pots and pans were not cleaned. You know, it, garbage was everywhere. This was when Angela was just beginning her own life as an adult. Angela says she had to become a mother to her own mother. She had to put parts of her life on pause. She had to teach her mom how to buy groceries, how to do her finances. And as she's flipping through the documents that it took months for her to get, she is angry. Especially when she reads how doctors at the Allen wrote about their communication with Nancy's dad during her treatment. He has been reassured that the present planned treatment is the most appropriate for his daughter's case and that it will not induce any permanent injury to her brain or personality. 
and that she is receiving the best possible nursing care. Angela says this line is crucial, that this is how her mother's family was lied to. According to them, the Allen's treatment did cause permanent damage. It was not the best possible treatment plan at all. For me, just to read that, it's so disturbing having not only the information, the knowledge, and everything that has gone through. Uh, it, it, it's just um, incomprehensible of how uh, this was done at the time. This is just one thing that happened to one person 60 years ago. One long and lonely story, especially for Angela. It's been a wish of mine for many, many years just to find, not be alone anymore in this process. But here's the thing. Angela and Nancy are not alone. Not even close. That's coming up in a minute. That was a teaser from part one of Madness, our new series from our podcast Endless Thread. The rest of the series is out and waiting for you. Just subscribe to Endless Thread wherever you found Last Seen and look for the episodes titled Madness. Thanks for listening.